Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 57, The 15 Plagues. Our story for today is one of the stories that have made Exodus stand out in the entire Biblical canon. It tells of God inflicting terrible plagues on Egypt. He turns the Nile water into blood, plagues them with frogs, then lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, complete darkness. And to top it off, God kills all Egyptian firstborn boys. When God is done with it, Egypt will become a disaster zone. We all know this story. Or at least we think we do. Because the story we know is one narrative made up of three separate stories that were combined in editing. It has three layers sewn together into a list of 10 plagues. But if we read these layers separately, we can see that there are more than 10 plagues. There are 15 plagues. 15. Let's dive in. I want to thank Deanne, David, and Megan for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. Welcome. Hi, everybody. This is Gil. Thank you for listening. So, are you ready for the magical war against Egypt? Because it is upon us. Egypt is going to be ravaged by God. Why? Mostly because Egypt is holding the Hebrews captive. But the different stories have different particular reasons and goals for this war. So in this episode, I want us to get a clear picture of each separate story as it was written. And then later on, we'll dedicate an episode to each one of those layers separately to really appreciate it. This is an overview. Ay, 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 poor Egypt. I will remind you what we learned long ago on this podcast, that this has nothing to do with Egypt. They're the scapegoat, the patsy, the stand-in. Egypt is a stand-in villain. And the villain is Babylonia. Babylonia not only destroyed Judea, sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple, but also took thousands of Hebrews captive to live in Babylonian cities. They were victims of Babylonia, not victims of Egypt. The stories of Exodus are not accounts of events, they are literature. But literature doesn't mean that 
everything in it is made up. In the plague stories, the perspectives are real and the emotions are most definitely real. We can look at the recent uh, fantasy and sci-fi films and stories. In fantasy and sci-fi, sci-fi is also a sort of fantasy. Everything is a stand-in for what is happening now or has happened before. And it's not hidden deep beneath the surface. You are meant to recognize this immediately. I mean, I don't want to blow your mind, but if you've watched the American film Avatar, set in Pandora, with the Americans invading the land of the indigenous Navi, it's not really about Pandora and the Navi, okay? <laughs> it's about what the Americans did to the Native Americans, okay? The Navi are stand-ins for Native Americans. And there are stand-in for the Iraqis as well, because it came out a little bit after the war in Iraq. Mind blown? No? What about the South African sci-fi film, District 9, where the South African government violently segregates aliens in shanty towns and oppresses them, the aliens? I mean, we can see in this movie that the South African society, especially the white South Africans, they are very, very, very racist towards the aliens. Oosh. They use hurtful, racist terms to describe aliens. How shocked would you be if I told you that the segregated aliens are a stand-in for the segregated black population during apartheid? I wonder how many South African viewers missed that and thought that this was just a theoretical story about aliens in shantytowns. Hmm. So this is exactly the same with Exodus. Everybody in the audience knows that this is about Babylonia. Okay, come on. So this is a revenge fantasy story, which is why we're going to see so much damage and destruction laid upon the standing of the real enemy. So now that we have that out of the way, let's see how we get to a total of 15 plagues. So the 10 plagues are a cinematic universe that includes three separate stories written by three different people at three different periods of time. And when we get into each individual story, it will be the first time you ever hear about these original plague stories as they were written. We'll get into detail about each of these narratives in future episodes. I just want to note, Ezekiel wrote the first layer in Babylonian times, Ezra wrote the second layer in Persian times, and a Maccabean-appointed editor combined those, added his own, and tied up the loose ends in Hellenistic times, when Judea was independent under Maccabean rule. So a Babylonian layer, a Persian layer, and a Hellenistic layer. 
in terms of the dominant culture of the day. At no point in history was the Hebrew culture dominant. These stories weren't written during Hebrew times. That doesn't exist. They were written during Babylonian times, Persian times, and Hellenistic times. These periods are so radically different that it's little wonder that the stories are different as well. The first two layers have seven plagues each, and the third layer was part of the editing of Exodus that added one more plague for a total of 15. 7 plus 7 plus 1 equals 15. Because many of the plagues overlap, the editor was able to change the two lists of 7 into a list of 10, the round number of 10. The layers are in the public domain thanks to the documentary hypothesis. I'll add the link in the show notes in case you want to count for yourself. So we have seven plagues, and then seven plagues, and then the total is cut down to ten. Seven, seven, and ten. Numbers are a cultural thing, and they have a cultural meaning. You don't just pull imported numbers out of your ass, like 135, a banger of a number. That's not how it works. Numbers are a distinct cultural thing. Some examples. Chinese tradition, they have three lucky numbers. Three, six, and eight. And they exported this concept of three, six, and eight being lucky numbers to non-Chinese cultures around them. The Mayans and the Aztecs, they loved the number 20. 20. For them, 20 was the base number default number. But in Mesopotamia, their base number was 60. 60. It started with the Sumerians from before the year 3000 BCE. 3000 BCE. The Sumerians invented the writing system and they loved math. Which is why they divided the day into parts made up of 60 smaller parts, which we call an hour. One hour has 60 minutes. That's a Sumerian concept we still live by today. How awesome is that? I read the research scholars have done on the matter, and as far as I understand it, the reason Mesopotamians loved 60 so much and used it as a base number for their math is because 60 was the first number that you could divide by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So it was easy to use. And after 6 came 7. 60 cannot be divided by 7. And 7 has all kinds of uh, mathematical attributes (laughs) that I didn't really want to dive into because this is a Bible podcast. Just focused on the bottom line, which is the number seven stands out as different and unique. And it was also apparent in literature. For example, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, something happens the same way six different times, 
And then the seventh time is different. Seven is mystical, mysterious, which led to colloquial Mesopotamian expressions that seven lies is too much. <laughs> I like that one. And also such concepts as the seventh son of a seventh son. So that was the backdrop when the first seven plagues were written in Babylonian times. Can't be a coincidence. What about the second layer written in Persian times? That also has seven. Mm. The Persians took seven one step further. Seven was everywhere in Persian culture, including religion, mythology, astronomy, the political system, and literature. In Zoroastrianism, there were seven divine deities, seven sages who created the universe. The Persians found seven planets in our system, and they had seven parts of their national epic poem known as the Book of Kings. For Persians, seven wasn't special because it was weird and mysterious. Now, for them, seven was special because it was perfect and balanced. So it makes sense that Ezra, who loved things being perfect and balanced, also had seven plagues in his story. Seven ruled supreme. Until the Hellenists came over. Alexander the Great conquered the world, and Hellenism was suddenly everywhere. In Hellenistic culture, the number 10 was as significant as 7 had been before. Since the time of the Minoans and Mycenaeans, 10 was considered the perfect number for everything. For people growing up in the Hellenistic world, the number 10 represents completedness, order, balance. Athens, for example, was divided into 10 tribes. For the Hellenists, it was also divine, and it represented the natural world and the human experience. There was a top 10 list of Olympian gods and goddesses. Greek philosophers believed that the number 10 represented the completedness of the universe because the universe was made up of 10 celestial bodies visible to the naked eye. 60 had been the base number for 3,000 years in this region, but the Hellenists, they introduced the decimal system, which divides numbers into tenths. And since the Romans adopted that and spread it all over, and 1,500 years later, the Europeans spread the decimal system all over the world. We still think in tens. Numbers are not random. To recap, the first two sets of plagues were written at a time when seven was the most magical and divine number, and accordingly, they each had seven plagues. And then in Hellenistic times, the biblical editors merged those 14 plagues down to 9 and added their own to form the new magical divine number of the day, 10. No one outside the Hellenistic world had any relationship with 10 
before the Hellenists came around and conquered that world. Ten is a Hellenistic number. It wasn't a thing before them. So when do you think the list of God's laws was codified in a list of Ten Commandments? In Babylonian times? In Persian times? Or in Hellenistic times? Okay, so here we are. We'll start with the original plague's story. The original. You've never heard this before. Hell, you don't even know what the original plagues were. The original seven plagues. Needless to say, I had no idea myself before I started preparing for this episode. So we're discovering this together. Here are the first seven plagues. Written by our dear Ezekiel Yechezkel during the Babylonian captivity. It starts with the Nile water turning into blood. Then come the frogs. Then the flies. Boils. Pestilence. Hail. And the final plague is locusts. The locusts were the big one that got the pharaoh to fold. An unstoppable swarm of locusts is too much for an evil king. So there are several different sorts of magic and magical powers here at play. Turning water into blood, that's straight up magic. You transform one thing into another. This magic specifically, turning water into blood, that's magic that destroys nature. It makes water unpalatable. That's one kind of magic. Then there's the magic of conscripting animals (laughs) to your magical war. Hmm? If this story was written somewhere else, then God would have summoned uh, elephants, or buffaloes to attack the enemy. But here God summons frogs, flies, and locusts. Okay. Then there's the magic of plagues, like actual plagues, diseases. The pestilence and the boils. And there's one plague, hail, that is magic that weaponizes nature. It's like in Scandinavia, a certain god can weaponize the sea. So there are many kinds of magic here. What about the story? What is the point of this Hebrew magical onslaught on Egypt? What are they trying to achieve? So the Hebrews are attacking Egypt to force the Pharaoh to let them Worship God in the desert. Desert or wilderness, as it's most often translated. Hmm? But the Hebrew word is midbar, desert. So the phrase in English is, let my people go, so they can worship me in the desert. 
The demand is to go to the desert or wilderness. And in this original exodus, where do the Hebrews go after their attack against Egypt is decisive? Do they go back to their land? No. In this story, they go where they wanted to go, to the desert. That's their goal, that's their destination. Later, when Exodus becomes a cinematic universe, when other people add their versions, it becomes an Exodus to go back to the land, but not in the original. So, if we wondered why the Hebrews spent so much time just doing nothing and going nowhere in the wilderness, well, the answer is because the wilderness is where they wanted to get to in this story. And in the original Exodus, why do they want to worship Yahweh in the desert? They say that plainly to the Pharaoh. They want to go to the desert and worship Yahweh to save themselves from Yahweh. If they don't succumb to his demands, he will kill them in plagues and in war. And now that we see the magical onslaught of Egypt, We can only imagine what God would have done to the Hebrews if they refused to go to the desert. So that's the perception of God in the original Exodus. He is dangerous, violent, vengeful. Appease him or die. We can empathize, I think, with this perspective when we understand that this was written in a time of great duress. People were trying to make sense of why their God let their country be destroyed, their city, their temple, and them themselves taken captive to be oppressed in a foreign land by an evil king. And this is a political battle. God doesn't like the Pharaoh's policies. So he strikes with chemical weapons. The very lifeline of Egypt. He pollutes the Nile. (sighs) He pollutes the Nile. That's like polluting the ocean for Polynesians. Oh my goodness. Their major source of palatable water that serves hundreds of thousands of people (gasps) is polluted now. Wow, wow. Regular, I'm talking about regular people, civilians. Wow, wow, wow. Then God attacks other critical Egyptian infrastructure, such as livestock and farms, you know, with hail and locusts and whatnot. And the civilian population bears the brunt of the damage. God is not attacking military targets. He is not destroying the Pharaoh's palace. God's political plan here is to force the Pharaoh's hand to change his policies by inflicting maximum pain on the civilian population at large. And I think that targeting civilians for political reasons and to change political policy, I think that's the definition of terrorism. So you can have guerrilla terrorism, you can have state-sponsored terrorism, and here you have divine terrorism. 
Okay. If this original Exodus were a movie, you can't convince me that God wouldn't be the villain, okay? He engineered this whole thing from scratch, okay? The Hebrews do not want to go to the desert to worship God. God sends them someone to threaten them that if they don't go to the desert and worship God there, he will kill them by war or plagues. So the poor Hebrews, they are forced to ask the Pharaoh to go to the desert. And this runs counter to Egyptian interests. So the Pharaoh says, uh, no. And that causes God to destroy Egypt. And the poor Hebrews later, they're just roaming in the desert or wilderness. And they're miserable. And they want to go back to Egypt. And now we know why. They never wanted to go to the desert in the first place. So the terrorist attacks continue because God rejects the Pharaoh's initial offer of the Hebrews worshipping him in Egypt. Here the Pharaoh broke the first commandment. Never negotiate with terrorists. The moment he gave an initial offer, he showed God that he can be pushed over. God says, no, 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 no. They have to worship me in the desert. And I'm reminding you that the Hebrews <laughs> did not voluntarily choose to do that. Okay, this is a battle between God and the Pharaoh. The Hebrews are like the machine that does the worshiping for God. I guess with automation, he wouldn't need the Hebrews anymore. Maybe that's why he's gone now. After some more plagues, the Pharaoh has a second offer. The Hebrew men can leave to the desert to worship Yahweh, but the women, children, and livestock stay. This offer is rejected, and the indiscriminate attacks continue. The hail plague is particularly destructive for Egyptians. People are hurting. The Pharaoh is hurting. And he caves to the terrorists. And he grovels, humiliated. But then his heart hardens again and he changes his mind. <sighs> MFing unstable pharaonic heart. It must be the trauma inflicted by this honestly unnecessary act of aggression against the nation of Egypt. And then the locusts break the pharaoh and Egypt. How scary are the locusts? They are so numerous that they block the sun. And Egypt becomes dark. Which I think is the inspiration for the plague of darkness in the second version of Exodus that we'll soon talk about. So God finally has managed to convince the Pharaoh. That's the only way to release the Hebrews. No matter how powerful God is, he can summon locusts. But he cannot release the Hebrews without the explicit permission of the Pharaoh. And here, after the very special seventh plague, the Pharaoh gives them permission to go to the wilderness where the Hebrews find themselves captives 
of a crazy desert god. And they're thirsty and frustrated and tired. And they plead with God to go back home to Egypt. So that was the overview of the original plagues. What was the second set of plagues written in the second layer of Exodus? These are the magical seven. Water turning into blood, frogs, then lice, pestilence, hail, locusts, and the final one is darkness. So again, I think the darkness following the locusts was inspired by the darkness the locusts caused in the original Exodus. But a plague of darkness, that's cool, I think. So kudos for Ezra for that. And I have to say that Ezra knows how to write magic. He wrote the magical face-off. We'll see in future episodes that his descriptions of the plagues are extremely cool. The plague of darkness is cool. But I think that he should get the credit for the coolest plague of them all. One which we somehow missed, or maybe it's just me. In the list I just read, I mentioned the plague of hail. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, he had the plague of hail. And Ezra took that and upgraded the hail in his remake into a plague of fiery hail. Hail with fire raining from the sky. Did you know that there was fiery hail? It's still there. Inside the hail, there is fire. This is fantastic. And the Hugo Award for fantasy literature goes to Ezra. All hail, the hail with fire inside it. Fiery hail that compels me to visualize it. I'm raining fiery hail on you. Anyway, it's clear that there is a lot of overlap, right, between the first two sets of seven plagues, which allowed the editor that came later to turn these two sets of sevens down to nine plagues overall before he added his own. So that's that about the magic in the second layer of the plagues. What about the story itself? The original Exodus narrative was written during the captivity, which was a very hard time, and that's conducive to a story with a lot of pain and distress. 100 years later, though, the world Ezra was born into, that was a good and balanced world. Order had returned. Everything was now better. The Babylonians were long gone. And the Hebrews had been given the green light to return to their homeland whenever they wished. When Ezra was born, the temple of Jerusalem had already been rebuilt. The homeland was waiting for Ezra. 
That's a very different context to write a story of plagues. This was a beautiful time. So why is God waging a magical war against Egypt in the second layer of Exodus? Sure, he wants to terrorize Egypt, but he wants to do it to force the Pharaoh to let the Hebrews return to their homeland. Now the desert or the wilderness, that's not a destination, that's just along the way back to their homeland. The homeland is waiting for them. But the plagues themselves, they are structured less as a story and more as a list. Ezra, we have learned, loved listing things, plagues included. So whereas the original version had a back and forth negotiations, twists and turns, the remake has a list. A list of cool magical attacks. And here comes the crucial difference between the first two layers. During the Babylonian captivity, God had been the one who sent the Hebrews to this captivity. Why? Because as we've seen, this God is dangerous, violent, and vengeful. But in Persian times, the emphasis was on the fact that God had been the one who released the Hebrews from this captivity. So God is good, and he has a plan. He had always had a plan. These people just didn't know it. Eventually, the Hebrews will return, obviously. Which is why in Ezra's magical war against Egypt, there are no negotiations. The end result is inevitable. And God knows that eventually, after his magic destroys Egypt, the Hebrews will be released. So whenever the Pharaoh is not swayed by a magical terrorist attack against his people, we are told that God had foretold it. He knew the Pharaoh would not be swayed. So God is good, but he's not all good. Because he wasn't all good in real life, hmm? The Hebrews did suffer in Babylonia, that's just a fact. Ezra couldn't deny that. So he lays out the divine rationale for the Hebrew suffering. There is a reason for that. And God explains himself to the Hebrews. The setup to this part is that the Pharaoh is swayed after the sixth plague, but God hardens his heart and unsways it. Why is he doing that? So God quickly justifies himself by saying that he had to do it this way in order to pass the message that you can't mess with his people, with his peeps. Six plagues are not enough to make that point. He wants to drop the mic with a seventh plague of darkness. And as a result of the final plague of darkness, the Hebrews are finally allowed to live towards their homeland. And they start the journey through the desert or the wilderness. And in contrast to the first layer, in this narrative the Hebrews are not aimlessly roaming around, they're always going somewhere. We'll see about that when we get there. But now we have to get to the final plague, the tenth plague. You know what it is. If we thought God was vicious in his magical attacks on Egypt 
up to now, now God is going to take it to a whole other level. God is going to kill babies. Okay, that was harsh, I admit, but that's what God does in the final plague, written during Hellenistic times. That's the magical number 10. But that's one number 10 that nobody likes. Nobody likes this plague. It makes everyone uncomfortable. Why was it necessary? God hardens the Pharaoh's heart in order to be able to kill babies. So in Hellenistic times, God is cruel. This is cruelty. There is no other way to describe it. In Hellenistic times, God is cruel. Cruelty is a trait of Hellenistic gods. So cruelty was a sad state of affairs in Babylonian times, cruelty was a necessary tool for your protection in Persian times. But in Hellenistic times, God is relishing the pain he is about to inflict on millions of people. Let me read. Around midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of the Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. The Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night. And there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. No justification is asked or offered. This is just the way of the world in Hellenistic times. And here Egypt is again a stand-in, but not for Babylonia. Egypt here is a stand-in to the hated Hellenistic Seleucids. Let's not blame the Hebrews for valuing cruelty. The civil war and the war of independence were very, very cruel. But we're talking about a tiny little island in a vast Hellenistic ocean. I think this represents Hellenistic values. Hellenistic gods are cruel. This is the darkest moment in the Bible, I think. We'll get into that in a later episode. I'm not sure how to tackle it because I don't want this dark moment to ruin all the fun. Come on. We just went over for the first time in our lives the three different layers of plagues stories. 
one that has the plagues as a negotiating tactic to force the Pharaoh's hand to let the Hebrews worship their god in the desert. The second story has the plagues as an inevitable and necessary destruction that had been foretold would be needed to get the Hebrews back home and to make the point that the Hebrews are not to be fucked with. Unfortunately for the Hellenists, they fucked with the Hebrews. And the hatred of the Hebrews towards their foreign aggressors had them describing a god that wants to kill hundreds of thousands of foreign babies, foreign babies, while protecting the Hebrew babies, to show that the Hebrews should be separate from the foreigners. For us, this is just disgusting. But if we try to look at this from their perspective, it turns out that the Hellenists were famous for being very, very racist against foreigners. And the Hebrews now, they are surrounded by millions and millions of foreigners. So that's how they got to their conclusion that foreign babies should die. <laughs> oh, I tried. You know, okay, at least they have an ethos. So, what did we learn in this episode? I think we learned that it's a cultural thing. A larger cultural thing. The Hebrews then, like today, or at any other point in history, are, and I'm switching metaphors here, they're not an island. No person is an island, and no people are an island. There's a dominant imperial culture, then, like now, and each people with less dominant cultures have their own unique blend of ingredients in their culture. But still, we're all immersed and flooded with a dominant imperial culture. So these plague stories might be ancient Hebrew stories, fantastically written, but they're seeped in the dominant culture of their day. And the word culture here is vague, and maybe it will be more helpful if we use another word. Content. Culture is content. Content is culture. Content creators, culture creators. That's pretty much the same thing, just different terminology. Just content helps us grasp it better, I think. So I have a lot of American content in my head. That's most of the content out there that is accessible to me. It's a little bit embarrassing, but then I remind myself that the Bible is Hebrew content. So uh, come on, we're no slouches. It would be impossible for me to create content out of anything other than the content I already have in my head. If I were raised somewhere else and taught different languages and stories, then whatever content I would create would be based or inspired from that. We can only create content from the content we already have in our heads. 
And this is true for culture. The new culture that we create is always based on the previous culture that we consumed. And the dominant culture of the day, by definition, creates the most content that is most widespread in people's heads. People who lived in Babylonian times had Babylonian content in their heads. People who lived in Persian times had Persian content, and people who lived in Hellenistic times had Hellenistic content. This is how just things work, how culture works. So these stories were created, among other things, from the dominant culture in the time in which they were written. Israeli movies today are also a little bit American. You can't escape from that. And our Hebrew biblical writers took all the content that they had access to, and from that wrote each their own version of a magical war against Egypt. We know that Babylonian times were the last hurrah of the violent Mesopotamian empires when smaller peoples were at the whims of kings. Persian times were a period of balance, order, and regeneration, and the renewal of the pact with God. And Hellenistic times were a period of cruelty, death, and war. So I think it's very cool that there is Babylonian DNA in the first layer of the magical war against Egypt, then Persian DNA in the second layer of this magical war, and then the editor in Hellenistic times left Hellenistic DNA in a plague like no other. And these three pieces of DNA are visible in the chosen number of plagues. Seven in Babylonian times, with a pattern of six broken by the seventh plague that does the trick, exactly along the literary conventions of Mesopotamian literature. The seven plagues written in Persian times are different in that they are merely inevitable because important things come in sevens in Persian times. And from Hellenistic times till today, we think in tens. We want a top ten list, not a top seven. So the plagues were sewn together to form the list of ten we know today. You probably heard the expression about stories like the ones we went over today. There is a lot of wisdom in these ancient stories. I don't like that at all, I find it uh, patronizing over people who lived before us. These people just did the best with what they had, like we do today. It's the content in our heads that is different, is all. But I will say that immersing ourselves in the ancient world can make us wiser. Because we can look at incredibly dramatic events and processes with the benefit of 2,000 plus years of hindsight. And I think that this exercise helps bring perspective 
to whatever is going on in the world right now. And I don't mean the kind of perspective that you get when you have a near-death experience. No. I find it helpful against the constant bullshit that is flung at us all the time. Because bullshit doesn't stand the test of time. It evaporates into dust. And one thing that I find to be bullshit is the notion that we're all so lucky to have been born in this world today. Because we have smartphones <laughs> and the internet. Okay. We are very lucky to have not been born in Babylonian times. Even though that's mostly true for those who were born into kingdoms with leaders who opted to do the most stupid thing imaginable and beef with Babylonia. For the rest, the world was okay. But I think that I would have loved to live in Persian times. Persian times. Persian times don't get enough credit. 200 years of hope, peace, stability. Until the Hellenists came over and brought back despair, war, and instability. <laughs> so, Passover is coming soon. Passover dinner. And maybe some of you will find yourselves in a Passover dinner. And if you're anything like me, I guess you never really felt comfortable celebrating the annihilation of Egypt. The animosity towards Egypt was always a turnoff for me. Kind of prevented me from enjoying these stories because it's hard to relate. I think ancient Egypt is fascinating, mesmerizing. I don't want to destroy it. <laughs> and there's also the awkward element that there is such a thing as Egypt still today under the same name. So there are people today who call themselves Egyptians. And I would love to visit Egypt sometime soon. I don't want to destroy it. <laughs> so I was thinking about the upcoming Passover dinner and what the stories of Exodus are actually about. Hmm? We know it's not about Egypt. This is about Babylonia. Babylonia and its evil king. And they destroyed Judea. They put Jerusalem to the torch and took thousands of people captive to toil in this or that Babylonian city. And the Babylonian evil king, he oppressed the Hebrews and many other people who he held captive as well. So what I'm saying is that I can get behind a holiday that celebrates the annihilation of Babylonia. I know it's not classy, and Babylonia is also fascinating and mesmerizing and all that, sure. But that empire just had to go. Everybody agreed, even Babylonians <laughs> agreed. 
a large proportion of them when the Persians came over. They knew they had it coming. And I think there's an added bonus to hating on Babylonia. A unique opportunity. There are no Babylonians today. They both deserve it and they're not around anymore to get offended. Hmm? This is wonderful. We can all agree this Passover and in general to hate on Babylonia and the Babylonians. I mean, celebrating the destruction of Babylonia is celebrating the destruction of a horrible enemy who has caused so much pain to our people. Babylonia. Fucking Babylonians, am I right? Always holding people captive. What's up with that? Have you noticed that the Babylonians have a tendency to hold people captive? I think that Passover would be a much more fun and engaging holiday if instead of hating on the stand-in, we hate on the real villain that deserves it. Babylonians and their evil king, Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe offer that as a suggestion and let me know if it catches on. If your family is anything like mine, the reaction will be no. (laughs) Just no. But I don't know. Maybe you'll explain it better than me. Okay, let's uh, wrap it up for this episode. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank the people who sent me messages uh, these past few days. And of course, I want to thank the tribe on patreon.com slash biblicalproportions. In two weeks, I'm not sure if I'll post episode 58 or a cool collaboration or something else uh, related to the Bible. But I'll be here in two weeks. So I'll see you then. I'm Bill Kidron. Bye, everybody.